Hi, and welcome to the Periscope Podcast, brought to you by the Education Committee of the Society of Neuroscience in Anesthesia and Critical Care. I'm Dr. Mitchell Weinstein from the University of Pennsylvania, and on this edition, I'll be speaking with Dr. Gerald Lerman about anesthetic neurotoxicity. Dr. Lerman was Chief of Anesthesia at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, and is currently Clinical Professor of Anesthesiology at State University of New York, Buffalo, and the Chief of Clinical Research. He's written over 250 articles on a wide range of topics in pediatric anesthesia and has been caring for children since the mid-1980s. Well, Dr. Lerman, thanks for talking to me today. My pleasure. You know, my practice at this time is primarily focused on adults. So I started reading some literature, you know, to get ready for our conversation. I discovered that there are considerable concerns about general anesthesia in children because of uh, potential neurotoxicity, and I, I never realized that before. Can you give us some background on that controversy? I would uh, distill down the controversy and concerns about neurotoxicity in young children after general anesthesia to a laboratory-driven observation causing anesthesiologists who anesthetize children to scramble to understand the scope and nature of the problem, which means we have been playing catch-up for more than a decade to identify the evidence in animals that supports this issue and understand it fully, and then to translate the bigger problem into how those animal observations might be manifested in harming children and to get our hands around the nature of any harm that we may be creating by giving anesthesia to children. Because this was not a clinical problem that someone stumbled on and went back to the laboratory to understand. This was a laboratory investigation that had nothing to do with anesthesia. And when it was identified as potentially a problem in children, we were caught basically with our pants down with no data and no one with expertise in this area. So in the last decade, we have basically been trying to uh, define the the problem and to determine the severity of uh, any effect that anesthesia might cause on any group or subgroup of children. Okay, so if it all started with lab studies, what exactly happened in the lab that led the investigators to believe that anesthetics were neurotoxic? The the issue uh, at hand was that the original studies were um, undertaken by a non-anesthesiologist, John Olney, out of St. Louis. And in the course of studying head trauma, he happened to stumble on what should have been otherwise normal cortex in anesthetized rat pups, having apoptotic areas of the brain that he could not explain, that after a little more investigation, he attributed completely to the fact that these rat pups were anesthetized. And no one before that point had ever had ever made that observation. In fact, rat pups are extremely fragile models and difficult to anesthetize. And so that's why it wouldn't have been anybody's bailiwick. When he published that data, it suddenly sent a lightning bolt through the pediatric anesthesia community raising questions about what he observed. So the first part of the investigations were back in the lab where a number of groups 
developed expertise in anesthetizing rat pups to study whether all these observations, and he continued to publish with different anesthetics, uh, were in fact legitimate. You know, difficulties like maintaining the model, uh, maintaining the lack of acidosis and hypoxia, hypoglycemia, these rat pups are very fragile. And in fact, when all the laboratory issues were put to rest, there appeared to be a common theme that almost every anesthetic and sedative that we have at our disposal is capable of causing not only loss of brain cells and apoptosis, but in fact, disorganization of many of the neural networks that occur and help us learn and develop memory um, so that young animals that were anesthetized in, in their uh, early fierce first five days of life turned out to have learning disabilities as adult animals. So that, you can imagine, was magnified the problem. Uh, so much so that uh, people began to ask once the animal models and the scope of the problem in the animals was so well-defined that how translatable are these data to the human condition? We are fully aware that perhaps 10% or less of the animal evidence of any effects of drugs uh, are are uh, translatable to humans. Um, and with such a low translatability, you have to ask yourself whether this is not a uh, idiosyncratic effect of the anesthetics in these vulnerable animals. Um, and so, so began a decade of trying to grapple with the clinical side of these animal data and whether or not the implications were in fact legitimate. Okay, so after those uh, lab studies to see what was going on with the animals, then I know they went ahead and did some retrospective studies. Can you uh, describe some of the retrospective studies that occurred? First, retrospective uh, studies that were undertaken about five or six years ago began at Mayo. And uh, they, uh, that group has actually published quite a number of studies. They have an enormous database and a rather well-circumscribed population with not much movement in and out of the area and a very close connection between the healthcare documentation and educational testing so that they actually were able to pull data from their uh, surgical load in young children who had anesthetics uh, and examine uh, the incidence of children with learning disabilities in that community. So Bob Wilder published a first paper in about 2009 in anesthesiology. And that really uh, was a pivotal study because what it suggested was that in a review of well over 5,000 children, many of whom uh, did not have anesthesia, but 10% had at least one anesthetic. And in those who had one anesthetic, there was no evidence that the children subsequently developed a learning disability, any greater than those who did not have anesthesia. But that those who had more, two or more anesthetics, they has had a much greater incidence of learning disabilities. Now, the learning disabilities were all over the map. They tested uh, uh, reading, arithmetic, uh, and so forth. And one might criticize 
the notion that these are differing parts of the brain. And should we be lumping all of these different learning disabilities together? It's open to question. But this certainly added a great deal of substance to the animal data, suggesting that there is some translatability of these rodent studies and monkey studies to, to the human condition. The problems with Wilder studies and many of the studies that have come out of Mayo are actually substantive. First of all, these studies were conducted in the late 70s, early 80s. So halothane was the anesthetic. There was a, a very little monitoring. We had no capnography in our signature. There and, and from, so from the anesthesia point of view, it really may not have a lot of relevance to today's quality of care that we deliver. But even more disturbing was the notion that these learning disabilities were not tested in every child in that community. They identified children with learning disabilities from their database, either because the teacher identified the child as needing testing or the parent or somebody said, oh, I think my child needs testing, which raises the whole question, how many, what's the incidence of learning disability in their population or whom the testing was never undertaken. And so just like every other retrospective study, there were many, many holes poked in the study. But subsequently, they've come out, again, looking at ADHD incidents and found that that was greater in the children that had multiple anesthetics. And others have reported uh, similar retrospective reviews that of databases that have suggested that the children who had multiple anesthetics had some impairment of cognitive function at a later time in their life. Now, there have been a few studies that suggest that there are no differences uh, amongst these, uh, these groups. Now, one study was an identical twin study. So where we had identical twins, uh, discordant, for having an anesthetic. So one of them did have an anesthetic at a young age and the other didn't in the Netherlands. And they were subsequently tested, I think around uh, 10 or 12 years of age in some kind of school performance testing. And they found that these identical twins, clearly same genetic background and same socioeconomic uh, exposure, uh, had no differences. But once again, even with over a thousand pairs of identical twins, uh, there are problems because the it may be that this neurodevelopmental and IT testing that was undertaken was not as rigorous as it could be to look for deficiencies in the children's cognitive development. And, and so overall, maybe they seem to do well, but you know, this is a question. Uh, and as well, the Details on the anesthetics were not forthcoming in the paper. So you can see that you can have hundreds of these retrospective reviews, but they, in some cases, are so deficient in the detail that it renders interpretation of their conclusions and application to our practices quite suspect and really not reliable. So yeah, you're right because we're doing different anesthetics now. They weren't testing; they weren't looking for it. These are just coincidental tests for one reason or another, and a self-selecting group. And the Mayo study tends to be a lot of kids who just happen to live in Minnesota. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's a maybe a homogeneous group of children, and and then uh, um, 
and in Lena Sun's uh, study, uh, I think it's DiMaggio published, uh, also looked at a well-circumscribed group in New York State, but they were all Medicare patients. So we have a lower socioeconomic group, a greater incidence, uh, no matter how well they tried to match cohorts uh, for comorbidities, um, you know, there are inherent problems in these retrospective reviews that we can't escape. And as a result, you know, we have uh, agreed to be completely open-minded about this problem, but we need some really tight data to make a decision one way or another whether our anesthesia needs to be modified in some respect. So, so as you said, it did begin with some epidemiologic data um, only in the last now year. Are we in the position where prospective studies are coming forward? What prospective studies are uh, are they doing right now? Well, currently, the, the most robust prospective study is the randomized controlled trial called the GAS study, which is an acronym for general anesthesia uh, versus spinal or regional anesthesia. Uh, and that study was uh, conceived by Andrew Davidson out of Melbourne, Australia, and uh, is a multi-centered international study. The preliminary two-year follow-up of that randomized controlled trial was just published uh, late last year in the Lancet. The primary outcome and final five-year follow-up analysis will be forthcoming in a couple of two or three years. So that's the first and probably the most robust from a study design point of view. There are two other studies that are underway. Both are uh, ambidirectional. They're, they're described as ambidirectional, being partially retrospective, partially prospective. And those are the PANDA study and the MASK study. And uh, Actually, these- just, to, just to interrupt, the, uh, the PANDA study, that stood for the... Uh- Pediatric Anesthesia Neurodevelopment Assessment yeah, Study? That is what it's the, that's the acronym, yes. And, and MASK is the Mayo Anesthesia Safety in Kids Study. You know, you, you know so, so what happens now, though? So you have all this tantalizing data uh, from retrospective studies that, though there are problems that, uh, that you know, the, the anesthesiologists that doctors are going to look at and say, well, okay. And we have these other studies that aren't going to come back for about, another eight years to these kids who are in school age and they look at them more formally, but a parent shows up and they say to you, um, you know, I read on the internet that, uh, that, uh, having my child go to sleep for their hernia repair can get them brain damage. Well, what do you tell that parent? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, because that, is the problem that we face. We can discuss this amongst ourselves, uh, but it's their child and they need to understand what the risks are, which causes me to pause and step back a second and uh, approach the whole question of the need for surgery in kids under three years of age uh, and how urgent is it to undertake the surgery. And one might argue, with very few exceptions, that giving an anesthetic to a child under three years of age is necessary because the surgeon not performing the surgery could lead to sequelae that are known to be harmful to the child. Now, what do I mean? For example, cleft lip and palate surgery has to be undertaken for 
a good outcome in the first year of life. There is no way around it. There will be feeding difficulties, could be aspiration difficulties. And so we have to do those surgeries. There are no elective surgeries, for example, cosmetic type surgeries that we do because we don't need to. We don't put lines in children under general anesthesia unless we have to. And quite apart from the surgical side, we get into some radiologic investigations. And you probably know as well as I do that there are scads of kids coming for MRIs for a follow-up because they don't know what's wrong with the kid or they want they, they just want to rule something out for which there really isn't a good enough reason. And the feedback from the, uh, to the pediatrician to say, are you sure this is justified? Because, you know, we have to get general anesthesia and there's a risk associated with it. Never occurs because once the pediatrician refers a child, radiology don't stand in their way. And we're the last gatekeeper the day before or the day of we have to give the anesthetic. And who are we to start? explaining to the parents that uh, this really is a greater risk uh, to benefit ratio. So those are the extremes of the scope of the procedures for which we may have to give an anesthetic, uh, and assuming it's a general anesthetic. Whether it's necessary surgery, there's really not much in the way of elective, but you can say there's some controversial. And then there's the other extreme, which is a radiologic, for which perhaps uh, that comes to mind is the most elective of all the the anesthetic indications we have. But we step back a second for all of these and say, in the course of discussion, before the surgical procedure or medical radiologic procedures are scheduled, a discussion has to take place of the risks and benefits. The risks of the surgery, the risks of delaying the surgery, the risks of anesthesia, and the risks of delaying anesthesia or not giving anesthesia. And I think the discussion and the concerns need to take place and be aired before the patient comes near the hospital on the day of surgery. And that, in some cases, doesn't occur. Now, we'll have parents referred to our department for discussion out of these concerns regarding anesthesia. And my comment to them is that when you decide that your child needs the surgery, you have to consider after discussion with the surgeon and with the anesthesia, whether the risks of proceeding or in the risks uh, outweigh the risk of delaying the whole procedure. So the risk-benefit ratio in the aggregate, not just of the surgery in isolation, not just of the anesthesia, but in the aggregate, must, the risk must be less than the benefits to accrue. And that includes, and to date, unknown risk to your child of having a general anesthetic were they under the age of, let's say, three years. And that's how I explain it to them. So they come in with you know, all their literature on the morning of surgery, then we do have a problem because I, um, the surgeon hasn't done his job in referring the parents to us. I'm sure the parents would have called the surgeon between booking the case and looking in the literature to say, hey, I just found out all these anesthetic things. I don't think I want my kid to have it and not have done something about it. You know, it's uh, an issue that has to occur if the parent has concerns. It's an issue that needs to have open discussion and explain to them what an expert's view of the literature means 
In other words, what is the anesthesiologist um, uh, position in light of the animal literature and the known human literature about giving an anesthetic to a child after three? And then it's up to the parents really to make the final decision. No, I don't want the surgery. I'll wait. Do you think you are able to go into the topic of uh, neurotoxicity in the adult brain? Because there's some concern about whether or not uh, anesthesia could cause uh, Alzheimer's or other long-term decline in mental status. Well, and I think that model, which has been around for many more years than a pediatric or neonatal concerns, is an example of where there's quite a lot of confusion in the literature. And science and the laboratory may identify uh, a problem or say there's a potential for a problem. When applied in the clinical realm, we see this occasionally um, that no matter how good the anesthetic is, the patient does deteriorate, the adult deteriorates mentally after. And what has become more and more obvious is that it may not be the specific anesthetics that were given. It may have been that the person was developing some vulnerability, some loss of cognitive function, and that with exposure to the anesthetic, there has been either a, a revelation of this problem or an exacerbation, unclear how or why, uh, but that more often than not, these patients may have had pre-existing uh, vulnerability to developing Alzheimer's. And this is an interesting issue. Again, it speaks to the whole notion. Who did the neurodevelopmental assessment of the elderly patient before they had the anesthetic? And the answer is, of course, well, we didn't. It's what the family said. They seem to be behaving normally. But that's how many of us perceive our family members until they suddenly do something really crazy like leave the stove on and burn down the house. And so that's an equally difficult area in the clinical sense to understand. And uh, while there have been suggested uh, in some studies that anesthetics exacerbate these problems. We may have, some may avoid benzodiazepines in the elderly. Others don't really support that. So, but it gets back to the same issue. We do see it at the two extremes now, whether they will ultimately come full circle and uh, mechanistically turn out to have similar underpinnings, we don't really know. But we're not happy about anyone losing cognitive function, whether they have a life ahead of them or they're, they've lived a long life already, and they want to continue to live just a perfectly healthy and normal state. I'd like to thank you, Dr. Lerman, for taking your time today to give us a brief overview of anesthetic neurotoxicity. Uh, we really appreciate it. My pleasure, and I hope this has been helpful. Mm-hmm.